Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ACHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. A little bit about Tidal Health before we jump into the presentation today. Um, we are a health system, like we mentioned on the Tidal side, that's across both Maryland and Delaware. So Peninsula Regional is located in Salisbury, Maryland, about 30 minutes east of Ocean City, Maryland. And Nanticoke is uh, about a 98-bed hospital in Seaford, Delaware. The McCready Health Pavilion is a freestanding medical facility of ours down in Crisfield, Maryland. Um, and then also, all throughout the community, we have a network of specialty and family practice physician offices. In addition to those, we have two outpatient pharmacies at this time. One is in our hospital here, posted on the slide, that is Peninsula Regional. Um, we try to make sure patients get their medications before they leave the hospital, and we also fill all of our employee prescriptions here. And our other outpatient pharmacy is at our um, Berlin site down in Ocean Pines at that health pavilion. So a little bit of background about us. In terms of health system surge planning, um, early on we did a lot of things that a lot of other hospitals did. We made some infrastructure changes. We'll talk a little bit about those first, and then we'll go into how pharmacy supported a lot of these endeavors. So our experience with COVID-19 um, started before our first patient, almost like everyone else's did. Um, you start planning before it hits you, not the day it became a problem, right? So our first patient, was uh, tested positive in the community on March 19th for us. This person was healthy, um, otherwise healthy in their 30s and was out in the community. This patient was not hospitalized and this was a travel related exposure for us. Our first positive patient here at Tidal Health Peninsula Regional was on March 21st. And then the very next day we had our first positive patient at uh, Tidal Health Nanticoke on 322, which looking back, I'm pretty sure it was a weekend because, you know, all things happen on weekends. Um, we implemented some mandatory health checks that began on March 24th. Mandatory masks went into effect here on March 25th. They are still ongoing now. Mine is not on because I'm in an office space with the door closed, um, but that is still something that we're very vigilant about here at Tidal Health. Um, and unfortunately, we experienced our first um, death on March 28th. So that's a little bit of a timeline of how things happened. Um, all of that was over the span of like a week and a half, right? So things progress very rapidly as we all have you know, come to know and live and learn with. So um, we do not still have mandatory temperature check policies. Um, what we do have is an attestation every day that we sign into the computer. We say that we don't have any symptoms. By logging into the computer, you're attesting that you don't have any symptoms, um, you don't have a fever, so on and so forth. Um, same thing with the time clock. When you clock in, if you're an hourly employee, um, you're, you're guaranteeing that you've checked yourself out for the day and you don't have a fever or any other COVID-19 symptoms. Um, very early on, back in March, we also suspended all of our clinical rotations, all of our volunteers, and all of our vendors. Um, to date, I'm recording this in uh, November, first week of November, we are allowing students 
back on clinical rotations. We definitely have resumed that. Um, our residency program was not impacted. Um, we continued business as usual with our residents. Our volunteers were suspended and still are suspended. Um, we have not allowed volunteers to come back into our hospitals, um, neither here at Peninsula Regional or Tidal Health in Anacoke. So, um, vendors are also still limited here at Tidal Health. We do allow vendors that are mission critical to support devices in the operating rooms and things of that nature. Um, but if it is not a critical vendor, we still are not allowing those people in at this time. We postponed all elective procedures um, pretty early on back in March as well. However, those have resumed. Um, we're here waiting and ready to take care of people. That's been our, mis that's been our message to the community. Um, limited patient visitation. This um, is still limited and it definitely fluctuates. Um, right now, uh, as I record this, Tidal Health Manicoke has seen um, quite an increased capacity in COVID-19 patients in relation to their total bed size. Um, so we have restricted visitation there even more than what it has been recently. Um, here at Tidal Health Peninsula Regional right now, we are allowing patients to have one designated visitor. We have very limited um, hours in which visitors can come. And of course, if you're in labor, you are allowed to have a designated support person as well. Um, so those are some of the things that we implemented. Some of them have evolved a little, um, but definitely still being very cautious as I'm sure everyone who's out there listening today still is, so. In terms of communication with the health system, we also recognize this was very important early on. Um, when I gave that timeline, it, uh, so much was happening so fast. Um, we needed ways to communicate all of these things out um, within the health system and then also with the community. Um, so one of the things we did here, we created a COVID-19 email address for employees. So if you had questions, you could email this specific email address um, and a team of people would get back to you with a response. So if you had questions or concerns, you could anonymously email this address and someone would um, get back to you. We also had a daily COVID-19 digest. Um, so we received daily updates of key things that we were tracking throughout the health system. And our CEO gave us a weekly update every week. Um, we created electronic health record dashboards. Um, certain departments had their own. We'll talk a little bit about that more in the presentation later. Um, and then our business intelligence team did a really good job pulling data um, from all the different departments and pulling it together into one uh, COVID-19 centralized dashboard for the whole health system. Um, we created a COVID-19 website, which was very helpful. Um, this website has instructions for the community on how to make masks. There's some instructions for different mask techniques, um, what to do if you think you've been exposed. There's instructions there for what to do, who to call, how to get in touch with the right people. Um, and this is also where we are posting all of our visitation updates in addition to different social media platforms. Um, but the COVID-19 website proved very helpful early on and is still something we are utilizing to this day. We also have daily department huddles um, for different departments throughout the hospital. Um, here in the pharmacy department, we actually have 
two huddles every day, um, one at the seven o'clock morning shift, one at the three o'clock, and then we have a smaller huddle at night um, as our evening shift and night shift kind of overlap a little bit. They do a huddle when night shift comes in um, around 8.30, usually at night. So um, we hand off important information to each other within our department at that time. And then there's also weekly department director meetings where the different department heads were getting together um, and coming up with plans, policies, and procedures related to COVID-19. Communication with the community um, was definitely very important. We created a COVID-19 hotline um, pretty early on that proved helpful. You could call this number and um, you know, say, I think I have symptoms, what do I do? And they would direct you um, and provide recommendations for what to do. Again, I mentioned that dedicated COVID-19 website that was very beneficial for us within the hospital to see as well as the community. Um, social media was updated regularly. We have a great marketing team here. Um, they did a great job keeping people uh, out in the community abreast with what was going on in addition to press releases. Um, something that we had created right before COVID-19 hit, and then this was just perfect timing, uh, we actually created a podcast here. It's PRMC On Point. I'm not sure if the PRMC part is still in that name uh, for our podcast now. We actually just rebranded. So our name used to be Peninsula Regional Medical Center, and we are now Tidal Health Peninsula Regional. Um, but this podcast was a great platform for us to let the community know about things like testing. Um, Beth Prouse, one of our clinical lab people, did a great job with a podcast about testing. Also, telemedicine was something that was very new to a lot of people. Um, not a lot of people had been using telemedicine in this region. It was a great way for us to connect with patients who still needed routine care. Um, so Dr. James Trumbull here did a great job with a telehealth uh, podcast and things of that nature. So this one really worked out well for us, I think. In terms of infrastructure surge planning, um, physically a lot of changes needed to be made to support a COVID-19 patient surge. Um, one of the things we did very early on um, before our first patient was tested out in the community, uh, we constructed an ED triage tent. You'll see a picture um, of this on the next slide. Uh, that went up on March 17th for us. We also deployed inflatable mobile hospital. I know you're asking yourself, I hope there's a picture of that and there is. <laughs> we'll see a picture of that in a couple of slides. Um, we also converted an existing patient care unit into a dedicated COVID-19 unit. That was a very small unit though. It didn't really give us the surge capacity that we needed. So we took a conference center um, that's down here in the basement, um, tucked down the hall past pharmacy. We took a conference center and expanded our ICU capacity with that. We built a 43 bed ICU unit down here in the basement of the hospital to help support the surge. And then we did some things in central pharmacy um, to help increase the surge capacity. Um, pretty early on, we recognized that this was something we were gonna have to deal with. The first week of March, um, we bought huge stainless steel racks just to give us some more storage space to store supplies or additional medications or anything else we would need. Um, and they definitely came in handy. Buy ones on wheels, that way they're easy to move. So this is a picture of that ED triage tent that we set up. Um, you can see it there right in front of our hospital. It's set up outside. So anyone who came to the hospital and said, 
um, they were having any type of respiratory symptoms or general unwell, we would send them to this triage tent first to be screened before we brought them into um, our building. We wanted to make sure people were being triaged appropriately outside before we brought them inside. Um, this was something that we actually just put back up again. We started to see uh, an increase in our um, patient population who is COVID-19 positive. Again, um, great news is these tents are easy to throw up. Um, don't know how much fun they're going to be to work in in the winter if that's a thing we need to do, but um, it's definitely a great option. This is our um, mobile hospital here. We, it's an inflatable tent, um, and I know not everyone had the luxury of, of this, so I'll talk a little bit about how we supported this. Um, the idea here was to put patients who were healthy um, out in the tent um, and then keep our negative pressure rooms inside the ED for patients with COVID-19 symptoms. So trying to keep healthy people outside of our ED as much as possible. These are people who would come in with belly pain um, or any easily triage types of issues um, that didn't have COVID-19 symptoms. So this tent is 22 feet wide by 70 feet long. Um, it's rated for winds up to 70 miles per hour. It uh, is equipped to hold 20 um, portable beds. It had heat and air, it had running water, it had medical supplies, and we actually put an automated dispensing cabinet out in this tent. We had the luxury um, at the time that COVID happened, we had the luxury of having extra automated dispensing cabinets on hand. I know other hospitals did not have that. We definitely had a leg up in terms of preparedness there, um, and that's just because we were in in the process of swapping out our equipment anyway so um, we definitely were lucky in that in that regard so we put an automated dispensing cabinet an extra one we had laying around um, out in that tent and we equipped it with a wireless bridge um, so it could hit our our wireless network and everything so closed loop transactions and all of that um, the cabinet was in profiled mode um, so medications needed to have an order to be pulled out under a patient. Um, we kept things appropriate here. To increase surge capacity, um, I mentioned we converted some units and we created new ones. So we actually had a section of our emergency department that had previously been dedicated to pediatrics. It was only about eight beds. So this was a good initial immediate, we need some negative pressure beds solution. Um, our facilities department ran these um, exhaust that you can see in the picture here um, to suck all the air outside. Um, and these rooms, we created negative pressure. To increase surge capacity in general, um, I mentioned we converted that conference center down the hall into a 43-bed ICU equipped with medical gas, emergency power, negative pressure. This whole unit is negative pressure. Um, you can see there's beds kind of lined up along the wall here. This is construction was almost complete. It actually looks a little bit better than this, but um, it is an open floor plan unit with um, beds beside each other. There are plexiglass dividers in between these beds now, um, so it is a little bit better than what it looks in this picture. We created anterooms for donning and doffing of PPE, and we put four clusters of automated dispensing cabinets down in these units to help support that. Some pharmacy considerations that we made to support these areas in their surges. Um, this is where ASHP's website really came in handy. Um, we were definitely reading the blogs 
weekly, daily, sometimes hourly to see what ideas our colleagues in New York and other states were coming up with and how could we duplicate that and um, get it out to our staff here as quickly as possible. So one of the things that we definitely stole from these blogs were rapid sequence intubation kits and adult code blue kits um, that were easily just medications in a bag stored in the automated dispensing cabinets that people could grab in an emergency and go. So instead of a whole code cart that needed to be flipped over every time it was used, um, we had multiple code bags in our automated dispensing cabinet. So if a patient coded, you could grab a bag and go. Um, initially, we thought it would be a good idea to have overstock in the cabinets. And then when nurses were done, we thought maybe they could pull inventory and make their own um, kits for future use. Um, that's not a workflow nursing was used to, and it didn't work. It was a great idea, but what we ended up doing um, was replenishing those kits for them every time we restocked the cabinets. What we also did was put a lot of overflow into the cabinet, um, so if they needed more succinylcholine or if they needed more Atomidate or anything of that nature, um, there was overflow capacity in the automated dispensing cabinets. Um, we also made these anesthesia trays. Um, we made these physical trays that we put in their automated dispensing cabinets that they could pull out. What we generally use here at Tidal Health are um, anesthesia carts. Um, most places are either using carts or trays. We use anesthesia carts. We didn't think it would be a good idea. We didn't have negative pressure operating rooms. We didn't think it would be good for people to be touching all over everything in the cart and then you know going to the next case and touching all over a cart. So we made these um, one-time use trays for people to use in the operating room. Um, definitely was a heavier lift, um, not a good long-term solution, but um, when you're surging, it's definitely good to try to reduce contact as much as possible between patients. Um, another thing we did, I'm not sure if other hospitals are familiar with this or not, but we made what we call a virtual kit in the automated dispensing cabinet. So providers know when they do a c-section they generally use these 10 meds they need these 10 meds on every patient so if you have a c-section that you know is coming up and you need these medications instead of us making a tray for you or instead of someone standing at that cabinet and typing in everything they want to um, pull out for that patient we made um, the name of the kit was LND COVID-19 kit so the provider could go to the cabinet they could type in LND COVID-19 kit, click that one entry, and then all of the drawers would pop open sequentially. So it would open the spinal bupivacaine. You'd pull your spinal bupivacaine, push the drawer shut. Then it would pop your drawer for Dormorph. You'd pull your Dormorph. Um, we went through it to pull 10 medications. It took less than two minutes. So it was a great solution. Um, it's something that they're still using here and there, but um, in general, we are transitioned back to using our anesthesia carts. Um, oh yes, so we created the dis, the dispense the kits to dispense out of the automated dispensing cabinets. Um, so all nurses would have to do if you just type COVID nineteen, everything that we made related to COVID would pop up. So COVID code blue bag, COVID RSI bag, um, COVID OR tray, all of those things came up. We also made all of these entries overridable in the cabinets. Um, so you didn't have to worry about pulling a patient up and then dispensing the kit under the patient. And like I mentioned, overstock in the ADCs um, was great. Another one of the considerations that we made for pharmacy was we needed a way to let people know 
that we had medications in stock. Um, people would call us and say, oh my gosh, it looks like steroid show benefit. Do we have steroids on hand? And um, these were things, you know, we're pharmacists. We had planned for medication shortages a lot better than other departments had planned for medication shortages because it's our job. Um, so we needed a way to visually let other departments know these are the medications we're tracking and here's an easy stoplight for you guys to see green, yellow, red. Um, so this particular screenshot here on the screen is from April, and you can see things we were tracking then, like azithromycin, um, Levaquin, things of that nature, green check marks, um, yellow caution triangles, and then the red stop signs are things that we were a little concerned about. At that time, it was remdesivir. Um, we did do a pretty good job with medication shortages. Um, like most people, you know, you're always going to run into things that you need more of and you can't get. Um, I will say we did a good job working directly with some of our drug manufacturers to get things. Um, I think everyone ran short on propofol all at the same time, um, so things like that. This was a great way for us to let other departments in the hospital know, hey, we have stock and we're good. Staffing patterns were another major consideration. Again, we got this tip from the uh, ASHP blog, I think pretty early on, about creating different teams of people. So we actually made an A team and a B team that would work seven on, seven off, and the two teams never overlapped. So if one person got sick, um, we wouldn't wipe out our whole department. We would only wipe out half the department at a time. Um, we actually never ended up needing to go to our A-team, B-team model. We were able to physically separate staff enough um, in our department that we felt safe working. We had some delivery process changes. Um, we made that COVID-19 ICU down, um, down the hallway here in the basement. We had the eight-bed unit upstairs. We had some different units and some different um, delivery processes, some units were entirely negative pressure, like that 43-bed ICU unit, and other units were our regular units that just had negative pressure rooms. Um, so technicians had different donning and doffing techniques depending on what type of unit they were going into. Um, and we didn't want them to have to garb up and go into the units every time they needed to deliver patient-specific medications. So what we did is put a medication bin in the ante room of those types of units, and um, we had pharmacy technicians drop off medications in those bins. Luckily for us, we had also repurposed a lot of staff here in the health system. So people who would have been um, like our cardiac rehab staff or people um, who would have been working on elective surgeries and things of that nature, we took those staff and redeployed them to other units of the health system that needed help. So um, luckily we got a runner who helped us run things around because we had shut the tube system off to COVID-19 units. Um, so we were very grateful in that regard. Also, we noticed we needed larger volume drips, so we didn't have people running back and forth between units all the time. Um, as an example, rocuronium, I think, before we were making drips that maybe were 250 mLs, and we realized, hey, we could make the volume double and save ourselves a lot of work. So I recommend that um, during surges, it's very helpful. And then conservation of PPE. I know everyone was doing this. I could probably give an entire presentation just on conservation of PPE and conservation of medications. One thing that really helped us that I do recommend 
we had a local church make for us um, some reusable gowns that had really nice cuffs. So we had some yellow reusable gowns. They fit snugly around our wrist. Um, they tied behind our neck and behind our back, just like the disposable ones would have. And we use those to don and doff um, into our COVID-19 units. So because nursing and people entering those units were using the reusable gowns, um, it saved our disposable gowns that we use for sterile compounding and things of that nature for us. Um, we didn't experience any disturbances with um, gowns, with bouffants, with booties. Um, we did switch vendors and early on back in March, we tried to get different stock from different vendors um, because we anticipated shortages in the future. Our IT pharmacists did a great job making a shortage management dashboard. I hope they listen to this and hear how wonderful they are. This was so, so helpful. I'm still using this to this day. I think I ran this like three different times today. Um, what they did was created a dashboard for us that looks at shortage utilization. You can look daily and you can look weekly. So on a daily basis, I can look and see how many new remdesivir starts we have, how many patients we have on um, whatever shortage, even if it's not related to COVID-19, um, it's a great way to track medication shortages. Um, so I recommend if you guys don't have a way to track shortage management somehow in your electronic health record, you reach out to your IT team and see what they can do to make this work. Um, in this example here, I can click on the drug and it opens up all the units where patients are. And then I can click on the unit and specifically look at individual patients. So this gives me an idea of how long a patient has been on a particular medication. Before this, I was using the whiteboard on the wall behind me to track, which I know a lot of people are still doing. Um, there are great uh, technologies out there now for us to track shortages a little bit better. Um, for us, this has been a great solution. And then from there, I mentioned earlier in the presentation that our business intelligence team pulled COVID-19 data from different departments and pulled it together into one big dashboard. This is a screenshot of some of the different areas um, that we looked at. We were tracking total ventilators and total ventilators in use, total negative pressure beds, total negative pressure beds in use. This was also where we put our um, stoplight medication guide so people could see a quick visual of our medication supply on hand. We also had a COVID-19 task force. This is a multidisciplinary team that included an internist, intensivist, infectious disease specialist, um, pharmacy lab, and we had a medical provider appointed champion. So this team met at least weekly, more than that if needed. Um, this group was responsible for the rapid review and approval of COVID-19 treatments. Um, they were constantly reviewing different treatment guidelines. They were looking at Brigham and Women's, University of Washington, um, the ASHP drug shortage site, along with some of the creative solutions people came with on the blog. So this task force did a really great job paving the way for a lot of decisions that we made. Remdesivir, um, this was approved, as we all know, for emergency use authorization. Um, we established some criteria for use. Uh, that COVID-19 task force kind of championed that for us, establishing the criteria for use. We created a fact sheet specifically for nursing here at Tidal Health, um, just so nursing would be familiar with what it was. We also kept a perpetual inventory. Um, we have to report out our daily quantity on hand 
every day. Still to this day, we have to report how much remdesivir our site has on hand. Um, initially, we thought it would be a good idea to keep a perpetual inventory in our um, controlled substance manager. We're no longer doing that. Um, we are just keeping our paper log. Um, compounding considerations are important to make. This comes in a localized powder as well as a solution. So we had two different records built out um, in our software that we use for IV compounding. So this is where barcodes are very important. You always want to make sure you can barcode check everything you're doing in terms of IV preparation. Some pharmacy-specific infection prevention strategies. Um, we did decommission the tube station, so we were using runners, like I mentioned, to run things back and forth. We created PPE policies for employees entering COVID-19 units. Um, this was great collaboration with our nursing educators. We really can't thank them enough. We had a nurse educator come down here and uh, educate the staff on how to don and doff an N95 and those types of things. And us, like many other institutions, were saving our N95s. We were using them five times and storing them in a paper bag. So she went through that whole policy um, and process with us. We made an area in the pharmacy where we stored all of our masks, and that went really well with support of our nursing educators. We quarantined all the medications that were returned from COVID-19 units for five to seven days, and then we cleaned all those products down with germicidal wipes before we returned any of those medications to inventory. We socially or physically distanced all of our pharmacists in the central pharmacy, so all of their workstations were kept at least six feet apart, um, and again, we're all required to still wear our masks. We did allow some people um, to do remote working. We did not do any remote order entry here at Tidal Health, but um, we did have our IT staff working remotely, our 340B analyst and clinical and coordinator was working remotely, as well as our medication safety staff. Um, one thing that went really well for us and that we still do here and there are telecommunications for patient counseling. Um, so we started counseling patients for discharge counseling over the phone instead of physically going to their room and talking to them just to minimize contact um, between patients. And this worked out really well for us. Um, patients were more receptive to telephone counseling than what we had anticipated. And we're trying to leverage this more for off hours when we don't have the staff here to run around all the different units counseling. Um, we wanna try to continue doing this because it was so successful for us. Some ambulatory considerations here. We started doing curbside delivery. Um, we used to do meds to beds. So if you were getting your prescriptions filled at our ambulatory pharmacy, we could bring them up to your bed so you would have them before you leave the hospital. Um, we switched that to curbside so you can come drive by and pick them up, but no longer will they be brought to your bed. Um, we purchased tablets and we used um, portable tablets for credit card transactions so we could swipe people's credit cards at their car. And within the pharmacy, we spaced um, waiting spaces out six feet apart and we put plexiglass shields up. So key takeaways, multimodal communication is needed within the system. It needs to be public facing as well as internal to help disseminate critical information. So as many different ways as you can get communication out, the better. Another key takeaway, leverage technology to track and trend data, especially as it comes with drug utilization, um, positive patients, and bed capacity. Those are all key things that we need to be tracking during COVID-19 surges. Also, a multidisciplinary task force is needed for literature review, patient reviews, treatment guidelines, and development. 
Um, so you definitely need a champion there to help lead some of these efforts. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do.